Some say that there's no such thing as an essential carbohydrate. Well, if you don't eat carbohydrate, you're not going to die, so it's true in that sense. But that's because we can make carbohydrate from things like protein in the process of gluconeogenesis. Carbohydrate is physiologically essential, meaning we need it in our bodies. And today we're going to look at one of the reasons why. The pentose phosphate pathway requires glucose. But wait till you see what it requires glucose for. Things that range from antioxidant support and detoxification to even recycling your folate. And far more than that. Let's take a look. Ketogenic diet has neurological benefits. Why do we have to eat such an enormous amount of food? Complex science, clear explanations. Class is starting now. I'm Dr. Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com, and you're watching Masterclass with Masterjohn. We are now in our 27th in a series of lessons on the system of energy metabolism, and today we're going to look at the pentose phosphate pathway. This pathway uses glucose to support an incredible array of processes that are essential to our health and well-being. Let's just dive right in right now. The slide on the screen shows the main objectives of the pentose phosphate pathway. Glucose can enter the cell and become glucose 6-phosphate. That glucose 6-phosphate could go to glycogen storage or to glycolysis, but can also go into the pentose phosphate pathway. In the pentose phosphate pathway, it's used to make two things. One is NADPH and the other is 5-carbon sugars. In this course so far, we've talked about NADH, but not NADPH. If you look at the structures depicted on the screen, they're almost identical in structure. NADP is shown on the left, and NAD is shown on the right. NADP consists of ADP ribose and niacin, and it's phosphorylated. NAD also consists of ADP, ribose, and niacin, but it's not phosphorylated. That single presence or absence of a phosphoryl group is what differentiates NADP from NAD, and that's what the P stands for, phosphate. Their standard redox potentials are the same, negative 320 millivolts for both of them. What that means is that the intrinsic ability of the molecule to reduce or oxidize something is not different. Remember, standard redox potentials assume that we have equal concentrations of each member of the couple. For the NADP plus NADPH redox couple, NADP plus is a member and NADPH is a member. The standard redox potential is measured under conditions where we have one molar NADP plus and one molar NADPH. The same is true of the NAD plus NADH couple, where NAD plus is a member of the couple and NADH is a member of the couple. Measuring its standard redox potential assumes one molar of each member of that couple. 
Now this is unrealistic in the sense that in our cells, we're not going to have equal concentrations of each member of the couple, and those concentrations aren't going to be one molar. But the reason we do it is because it allows us to see what are the intrinsic properties of the molecule. And so to say that the standard redox potentials of these two redox couples are exactly the same means that the phosphoryl group that's added to NADP plus does not influence the intrinsic reducing or oxidizing power of that molecule. However, it does allow these two redox couples to be metabolized by totally different enzymes. Some enzymes can be specific for NADPH or NADP+, in respect to, with respect to using it or synthesizing it. Other enzymes can be specific to NAD+, or NADH, again, with respect to use, using it or synthesizing it. So our cells deliberately maintain totally different ratios of these two redox couples so that they can be used for totally different purposes. In the typical hepatocyte cytosol, meaning the main fluid of a liver cell, the ratio of NADP plus to NADPH is 0.1. That means that there's 10 times more NADPH than NADP plus. Remember that the rate of a reaction is proportional to the concentration of the reactants. If you have a reversible reaction where either NADP plus can oxidize something or NADPH can reduce something and they go in opposite directions, then having 10 times more NADPH makes you far more likely to reduce that compound and go in the direction of reduction. If you're more likely to do that, then you do it faster. And so you overall in net will tend to reduce things with NADPH. By contrast, the typical ratio of NAD plus to NADH in hepatocyte cytosol is 1,000. That means that there's a thousand times more NAD plus, the oxidized version, than NADH, the reduced version. That puts NAD plus in an overwhelming oxidizing state and means you'll be overwhelmingly likely to oxidize things with NAD plus, whereas you're reducing things with NADPH. In general, tearing things apart, catabolism, is an oxidative process. So we can say that NAD plus is used for oxidative catabolic purposes, like the systems of energy metabolism we've been looking at so far where we're ripping apart molecules from our food to get their energy. By contrast, NADPH is used for reductive anabolic purposes, such as building things up or recycling things. Look at the stunning array of uses within the body of NADPH and 5-carbon sugars. NADPH is important for antioxidant defense and detoxification. It's used in the recycling of glutathione, which contributes both, both to antioxidant defense and detoxification. And it's needed for cytochrome P450 activity. These enzymes among other things, play roles in the detoxification process to help get foreign substances out of our bodies. 
NADPH is needed to recycle vitamin K and to recycle folate. Imagine that you eat a molecule of vitamin K or you eat a molecule of folate. You may use it once directly until it needs to be recycled, and then you'll use it hundreds or thousands of times because you used glucose to provide NADPH to recycle it. So you need to have these vitamins in your diet, but once you have them there, the vast majority of the activity of that vitamin is coming from glucose. NADPH is used for anabolic synthesis, building things up. That includes fatty acids, cholesterol, neurotransmitters, and nucleotides. Five carbon sugars are used as structural components of nucleotides, and that includes being part of the DNA molecule which makes them important for growth, reproduction, and repair. DNA holds your genetic information, which is mostly information about what is in your proteins. When you want to make a protein, you need to tap into that information. You do that by making an RNA transcript. And so that means that all the proteins you make in your body require RNA, and RNA is made in part of five carbon sugars. And that has implications beyond proteins, because there's not a single thing in your body, even if it's not a protein, that wasn't somehow made by proteins. So for example, think of cholesterol. You on the one hand need NADPH to make cholesterol, but then also you need a couple dozen enzymes to make modifications to molecules that ultimately become cholesterol or derivatives of cholesterol, like testosterone and estrogen and cortisol. All of those things may not be proteins, but the enzymes that made them were proteins. And in order to make those enzymes, you needed RNA templates, so you needed 5-carbon sugars. 5-carbon sugars make up NADH, NADPH, FADH2, coenzyme A and ATP structurally, meaning the entire infrastructure of energy metabolism that we've been looking at so far structurally includes 5-carbon sugars. To put it another way, the uses of NADPH and 5-carbon sugars are ubiquitous throughout the recycling and synthesis of all kinds of things in the biochemical landscape that we need within our bodies for our health and well-being. The pentose phosphate pathway is called the pentose phosphate pathway because it produces phosphates of 5-carbon sugars known as pentoses. But it's also called the hexose monophosphate shunt because it operates as a shunt when the need of the cell is primarily for NADPH rather than for 5-carbon sugars. If we have glucose and we go to hexose phosphates, we go from hexose phosphates to pentose phosphates, and in that process we have 2-NADP plus that become 2-NADPH with one decarboxylation reaction which has a CO2 leaving taking away the one carbon difference between hexose phosphates, 6-carbon sugars, and pentose phosphates, 5-carbon sugars. 
If we need five carbon sugars, those pentose phosphates become the source of the five carbon sugars that we need. But if we don't, the five carbon sugars build up and they drive themselves back into glycolysis through a series of reactions that rearrange them into hexose phosphates and triose phosphates. We can do a simple piece of math here. If we have three pentoses, we have three times five equals 15 carbons. If we can rearrange them into two hexoses and one triose, then we have two times six is 12, plus one three carbon sugar is 15, the exact same number of carbons that we had when we started with three pentoses. And yet, we have hexose phosphates and triose phosphates that can go back to glycolysis in the form that we need them to allow the glycolytic pathway to continue to operate. That's called a shunt because a shunt is something that diverts from the main path or the main circuit and can come back. This would be used, for example, in electrical engineering where you have something deviating from the main pathway of current that then circles back. The pentose phosphate pathway can be separated into two phases. Phase one is the oxidative phase, and phase two is the non-oxidative phase. In the oxidative phase, we have glucose becoming ribulose 5-phosphate, and that's where we produce Na 2-NADP+, that's where we make 2-NADPH from 2-NADP+, removing one of the carbons as carbon dioxide to go from a 6-carbon sugar to a 5-carbon sugar. This is, because, this is called the oxidative phase because two NADP plus do the oxidizing. Now, even though I said before that NADPH is usually used for reductive purposes, whereas NAD plus is usually used for oxidative purposes, there has to be an oxidative phase where NADP plus does the oxidizing in order to ever get the NADPH in the first place. So here, NADP plus is the oxidizing agent, but that oxidizing puts it into its reduced state and allows it to leave the pathway and act as a reducing molecule everywhere else. Ribulose 5-phosphate can then be turned into ribose 5-phosphate in the non-oxidative phase. The non-oxidative phase is the phase of rearranging the five carbon sugars according to our needs. If we need ribose 5-phosphate, it is the key 5-carbon sugar that becomes the precursor to DNA, RNA, and all the energy carriers. If we don't need the ribose 5-phosphate, the ribose 5-phosphate accumulates. Although all the reactions aren't shown here, we can simplify it to say that because the rate of a reaction is proportional to the concentration of reactants, if we have more ribose 5-phosphate because we're not using it to make DNA, RNA, and energy carriers, then that's going to speed up the rate at which ribose 5-phosphate is rearranged into triose and hexose phosphates. Those triose and hexose phosphates can then return to glycolysis. The oxidative phase occurs in three steps. Its ultimate goal is to produce 2-NADPH and to remove one carbon as carbon dioxide so we can go from a 6-carbon sugar to a 5-carbon sugar. But that happens in several steps utilizing three enzymes. The first enzyme is glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase. NADP plus acts as the oxidizing agent and turns the hydroxyl group shown in pink into a carbonyl group. Lactinase catalyzes the addition of water. Water provides the oxygen that is needed 
to produce the carboxyl group of 6-phosphogluconate. Now that we have a carboxyl group, we can decarboxylate it, and just as if we had decarboxylated pyruvate or done the two decarboxylation steps in the citric acid cycle, decarboxylation is an oxidative process. We usually use NAD+, but here we use NADP+, because our goal in this pathway is to produce NADPH. 6-phosphogluconate dehydrogenase catalyzes the oxidative decarboxylation of 6-phosphogluconate. That yields the second of two molecules of NADPH. It yields the 5-carbon sugar ribulose 5-phosphate and one molecule of carbon dioxide. Here we see several patterns that we've seen before coming together. For example, in the citric acid cycle and in beta oxidation, we saw this pattern of oxidation, hydration, oxidation. In those cases, we started with simple CH bonds and we oxidized them to allow the carbons to accept oxygen from water. Water came in and provided an OH group and then we oxidized that to a carbonyl group. We are not doing the exact same thing here, but that's because we're starting with glucose, which doesn't start from simple CH bonds, it starts from an OH group. So we oxidize it to a carbonyl and allow it to accept more oxygen from water, but we already have an oxygen. So we take in that oxygen from water and we produce the second oxygen of the carboxyl group. The addition of water, water's oxygen to a carbonyl to produce a carboxyl group is something that we saw in the, hydro in the hydrolysis of citral-CoA. Remember, acetyl-CoA condensed with oxaloacetate. Acetyl-CoA brought in a carbonyl group, and we hydrolyzed the thioester bond, and that allowed water to introduce the second oxygen of what turned that carbonyl into a carboxyl group, making the third carboxyl group of citric acid. Here, it's not the exact same thing, but the basic principle that we start out with a carbonyl and we add oxygen from water to make a carboxyl group is the same. That formation of a carboxyl group is what allows us to decarboxylate the molecule and remove a carbon, and that is similar to the patterns that we've seen throughout energy metabolism where in the decarboxylation of pyruvate or the decarboxylation reactions of the citric acid cycle, anytime we remove a carbon, we remove it as carbon dioxide. A few things should be said about the naming of some of the intermediates. We have not yet before seen a lactone in any of these lessons. It's easier to understand the name of 6-phosphogluconodelta-lactone if we look at it relative to 6-phosphogluconate rather than relative to glucose 6-phosphate. 6-phosphogluconate is so named because gluconic acid is the carboxylic acid form of glucose. You can see that like glucose, it has one, two, three, four, five, six carbons, but unlike glucose, it ends with a carboxyl group instead of an aldehyde. You can see that like glucose 6-phosphate, it has a phosphoryl group on carbon six, so it's six phosphogluconate. A lactone is a cyclic ester bond between what had been a carboxyl group and what had been an OH group before they bound together. 
You can imagine the formation of 6-phosphogluconodelpha-lactone by looking at 6-phosphogluconate and envisioning the carboxyl group on the top bending around to join to the most distal hydroxyl group. If that were to happen, dehydration synthesis could make this go backwards to produce the ring structure shown here. That ring structure is a lactone because you have a carbonyl group that came from the carboxyl group. It bound to an OH group, but because of dehydration synthesis, the OH left the carboxyl group, the H left the hydroxyl group, and you're left with an oxygen in the middle. That is an ester bond because, remember, an ester is the carbonyl that came from a carboxyl group bound to an oxygen atom bound to the remainder of a carbon-containing molecule. And so because we have an, a cyclic ester between a carboxyl group and a hydroxyl group that form together through dehydration synthesis, this is a lactone. Because it's the lactone version of gluconate, it's glucono-delta-lactone. And because of the phosphoryl group on carbon-6, it's 6-phospho-glucono-delta-lactone. The reason it's delta-lactone is because if we start from the carbonyl that engages in that ester bond, and we count the carbons with Greek letters, as we move carbons, we go to alpha, beta, gamma, delta, until we arrive at the carbon that donates the hydroxyl group. That carbon is, the, the position of that carbon as the delta carbon is why it's called a delta lactone. The fact that glucose-6-phosphate dehydrogenase is, the, is catalyzing the first step in the oxidative phase of the pentose phosphate pathway is extremely relevant to health because Deficiency of glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase is the most prevalent enzymatic error with a genetic basis in the entire world. It's best known as the cause of favism, which is an intolerance to an oxidative toxin in fava beans. And because the pentose phosphate pathway is so important to antioxidant protection, Having glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency makes you vulnerable to any kind of oxidative toxin, the one in fava beans being an example. Glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency is more prevalent in sub-Saharan Africa and in descendants worldwide from sub-Saharan Africa because of the presence of malaria. And the malaria parasite feeds off of glutathione and perhaps other products of the pentose phosphate pathway. And because it parasitizes the glutathione pool, then having a deficiency of glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase, a deficiency of glucose of glutathione recycling, and a deficiency of the other products of the pathway actually protects people from the malaria toxin. So if you look at the map on the screen, you'll see that in sub-Saharan Africa, you have countries that reach 23 to 39% prevalence. In the United States, it's around 4 to 7% prevalence, but it varies by ethnic group. So it's higher in blacks, it's lower in whites, and so on. Overall, globally, about 8% of the population of the world have glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase activity, which means that it's a very common metabolic inborn error 
that can contribute to serious impacts on people's health. Once it's produced as the end product of the oxidative phase, ribulose 5-phosphate can then undergo the non-oxidative phase or phase two. In that phase, it has two primary fates. One is to produce ribose 5-phosphate, which is the five carbon sugar that's used for DNA, RNA, and energy carriers as a structural unit within those molecules. The second fate is that it can also be converted to zellulose 5-phosphate. And if it does that, ribose 5-phosphate and zellulose 5-phosphate will react together with one another to undergo another series of reactions that allow them to be rearranged into hexose and triose phosphates for the return to glycolysis. The conversion of ribulose 5-phosphate to ribose 5-phosphate is catalyzed by phosphopentose isomerase. The conversion of ribulose 5-phosphate to zellulose 5-phosphate is catalyzed by phosphopentose epimerase. The terminology of isomers is very complex and we're not going to fully explain it all here. But suffice it to say a couple things. In the top reaction, we are going from an aketose, where the carbonyl is in the ketone position between two other carbon, carbons, to an aldose, where the carbonyl is in the aldehyde position, being on the end of the molecule. And so ribulose and zolulose, for that matter, as ketoses, are analogous to fructose, but the five-carbon version. And ribose 5-phosphate, the one needed for structural purposes in DNA, RNA, and energy carriers, is an aldose and analogous to glucose, but the five-carbon version. Going from a ketose to an aldose is an example of structural isomerism because you have a functional group that's moving from one carbon to another, changing places in the molecule. The conversion of ribulose 5-phosphate to zellulose 5-phosphate is not an example of structural isomerism. It's an example of stereoisomerism. The carbonyl stays in the exact same position, and all the other functional groups stay on the same carbons. But the OH group on carbon number three moves from the right to the left. Movement from one side of a carbon to another doesn't always matter, but it does matter in the case of a chiral carbon. If you can look at the carbon and you can go up to the left, right, down, and you see four different things attached to it, that's a chiral carbon. It gives rise to stereoisomers. An epimer is an example of a stereoisomer, and that's why we have the enzyme called phosphopentose epimerase. What it's doing is moving the OH group to a different orientation on the same carbon. Notice that these reactions are reversible. What that means is that they're controlled by the substrate flux through these reactions. In other words, if we have a lot of ribulose 5-phosphate, that's going to favor production of ribose 5-phosphate and xylulose 5-phosphate. But if we have a lot of ribose 5-phosphate, that's, that's going to favor conversion back to ribulose 5-phosphate. If we have ribose 5-phosphate that accumulates because we don't need it for DNA, RNA, and energy carriers, 
it gets sent back to ribulose 5-phosphate to make more zallulose 5-phosphate. Then as the concentrations of zallulose 5-phosphate rise, we have more zallulose 5-phosphate that can react with ribose 5-phosphate to undergo rearrangement in the other reactions and get sent back to glycolysis. So, if we need ribose 5-phosphate for structural purposes, we use it, but if we don't, that, simply because of the concentrations of the substrates, favors rearrangement and return to glycolysis. The goal of the rearrangement steps is to take two 5-carbon sugar phosphates and turn them into a 6-carbon sugar phosphate and a 3-carbon sugar phosphate that can go back to glycolysis. It occurs over three steps where two enzymes are used. Transketolase is used twice, and transaldolase is used once. We start out with zollulose 5-phosphate shown in blue and ribose 5-phosphate shown in pink. Transketolase chops off the top two carbons in zollulose 5-phosphate and adds them on top of ribose 5-phosphate. Three minus, five minus two is three, yielding glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate, a 3-carbon sugar phosphate, and 5 plus 2 is 7, yielding cetoheptulose 7-phosphate, a 7-carbon sugar. You can see in the diagram that the portion of the molecule in the 7-carbon sugar that came from ribose 5-phosphate is shown in pink. The top two carbons are shown in blue. We then take these two sugars and we feed them into the next reaction. Transaldolase takes the top three carbons off of cetoheptulose 7-phosphate and adds them to glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate. 3 plus 3 is 6, giving us fructose 6-phosphate. 7 minus 3 is 4, giving us the 4-carbon sugar phosphate erythrose 4-phosphate. These two sugars or rather, the fructose 6-phosphate is now ready to go back to glycolysis as fructose 6-phosphate. Meanwhile, the second sugar, erythrose 4-phosphate, combines with a second molecule of zollulose 5-phosphate, shown in purple, and they react with transketolase again to produce fructose 6-phosphate and glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate. This time, the second use of transketolase, transketolase helps us take the top two carbons of zollulose 5-phosphate and add them to erythrose 4-phosphate. 4 plus 2 is 6, giving us our second molecule of fructose 6-phosphate. Meanwhile, 5 minus 2 is 3, giving us glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate. Now we wind up with a second molecule of fructose 6-phosphate and one final molecule of glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate. That means that we had a total of two hexose phosphates and one triose phosphate that could return to glycolysis. Now notice that just as the previous non-oxidative reactions, all of these non-oxidative reactions are also reversible. We could imagine a situation, for example, where we had lots of fructose 6-phosphate and glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate leaving glycolysis. If they were building up in glycolysis, we could go back through these reactions backwards 
to yield ribose 5-phosphate for use in structural purposes such as DNA, RNA, and the energy carriers. We'll look at the implications of that reversibility momentarily. When the pentose phosphate pathway is operating as a shunt, as reflected in the alternative name hexose monophosphate shunt, glucose 6-phosphate becomes the source of NADPH as it's converted to ribulose 5-phosphate. Ribulose 5-phosphate is then converted both to ribose 5-phosphate and zollulose 5-phosphate. The ribose 5-phosphate feeds the DNA, RNA, and energy carriers, but to whatever extent it is not needed for that purpose, it combines with zollulose 5-phosphate to undergo rearrangement to fructose 6-phosphate and glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate. Fructose 6-phosphate enters glycolysis as itself, glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate enters glycolysis as itself as well, and that allows them to return to the glycolytic pathway to complete it for the sake of energy metabolism. In that sense, the glycolytic pathway is the main pathway, and the pentose phosphate pathway operates as a shunt, diverting the sugars for specific purposes and then returning them to the main pathway. As we talked about before, glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency is the most common enzyme deficiency with a genetic basis in the entire world. In addition, the enzyme transketolase is dependent on the B vitamin thiamine, or vitamin B1. We've seen thiamine before be especially important in carbohydrate metabolism because it's used in pyruvate dehydrogenase just like it's used in alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase. We'll come back to look at thiamine's role in transketolase mechanistically after we also look at its role in protein metabolism so that we can compare and contrast its role in the different pathways. But for now, let's note that thiamine is critical to the pentose phosphate pathway because it's a cofactor for transketolase. That on the one hand means that transketolase activity is a valuable marker of thiamine status, but also means that thiamine deficiency is going to compromise the use of the pentose phosphate pathway for 5-carbon sugars and NADPH and all of their uses. That makes glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase genetic deficiency and thiamine nutritional deficiency the two deficiencies that are most likely to hurt the function of the pentose phosphate pathway. The pentose phosphate pathway can operate in numerous modes because the reactions of the non-oxidative phase are all reversible. Like we said before, imagine that fructose 6-phosphate and glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate are what are accumulating in glycolysis. They can go backwards through all these reactions to generate ribose 5-phosphate and zollulose 5-phosphate. That feeds ribose 5-phosphate and zollulose 5-phosphate back into these reactions that we had looked at first. If the ribose 5-phosphate is being used up to make DNA, RNA, and energy carriers, then because these reactions are reversible, that favors flux of zollulose 5-phosphate through ribulose 5-phosphate to produce more ribose 5-phosphate for use as a structural component in these materials. So how this pathway operates is all determined by the needs of the cell, not because of hormonal and allosteric regulation so much as because of the flux of substrates through the pathway. We basically get three key things out of this. 
we can get NADPH out of the conversion of glucose 6-phosphate to ribulose 5-phosphate in the oxidative phase. We can get ribose 5-phosphate for the structural uses of 5-carbon sugars in the non-oxidative phase. And we can use pyruvate, the end product of glycolysis, for ATP production. So how these pathways operate all depends on how much do we need NADPH versus how much do we need 5-carbon sugars versus how much do we need ATP. Imagine a situation where we need both NADPH and 5-carbon sugars similarly. NADPH is being utilized, making NADP plus increase. The increased concentration of NADP plus is what drives glucose 6-phosphate into NADPH production and the formation of ribulose 5-phosphate. Ribose 5-phosphate getting used up as 5-carbon sugars decreases the concentration of ribose 5-phosphate available to the return to glycolysis. Therefore, what we primarily do is not operate this as a shunt, but instead we operate it as glucose 6-phosphate going into the pathway to yield NADPH and then to yield 5-carbon sugars that are sucked out of the pathway for structural uses. Now imagine that our need for NADPH greatly exceeds our need for 5-carbon sugars. The NADP plus will be in very high concentration, driving glucose 6-phosphate to ribulose 5-phosphate. But the ribose 5-phosphate doesn't get used up for structural uses, so it accumulates. As it accumulates, the increase in concentration drives it back into glycolysis. But then the question becomes, do we need ATP? If the answer is yes, glycolysis is activated and those, the ribose 5-phosphate returning as fructose 6-phosphate and glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate favor glycolytic flux down to pyruvate production and the use of pyruvate to produce ATP. But what if it's operating that way and we don't need ATP? Well, then instead of operating as a shunt, it could operate as a closed circuit. Glucose 6-phosphate is driven, driven into ribulose 5-phosphate by NADP+. Ribulose 5-phosphate goes to ribose 5-phosphate, which accumulates because it's not used for 5-carbon sugars. That returns ribose 5-phosphate to glycolysis, but the fact that the cell does not need any ATP can favor the gluconeogenic pathway, allowing fructose 6-phosphate and glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate to go up back to glucose 6-phosphate. In that case, we just run this as a closed circuit over and over and over again, fulfilling our needs for NADPH. Alternatively, what happens if we need lots of 5-carbon sugars and we don't need NADPH? Well, if we don't need NADPH, the concentration of NADP plus will be low. Glucose 6-phosphate will go to fructose 6-phosphate instead of to ribulose 5-phosphate. The accumulation of fructose 6-phosphate and glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate and the low concentrations of the intermediates within those rearrangement pathways favors flux of fructose 6-phosphate and glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate into those rearrangement pathways to generate ribose 5-phosphate to use for structural purposes. So what we see here is 
an incredible array of physiological uses of the pentose phosphate pathway, which has an absolute requirement for glucose. Glucose is the source of NADPH used for antioxidant defense, detoxification, recycling of nutrients such as folate and vitamin K, the anabolic synthesis of all kinds of needed structural material. The five carbon sugars themselves are structural components of our DNA and our RNA, making, it, making these sugars necessary for growth, repair, reproduction, basic physiological function through all of our proteins, and they're structural components of all of the energy carriers that we've seen throughout these lessons, making the pentose phosphate pathway and the glucose that supports it physiologically essential to an incredible array of biochemical processes that are needed for our health and well-being. It's also an amazing example of where our bodies have evolved to exploit a basic principle of chemistry that the rate of a reaction depends on the concentration of the reactants. And being able to exploit that principle means that we allow the free flux of sugars through these pathways precisely according to the needs of our cells. The audio of this lesson was generously enhanced and post-processed by Bob Devodian of Torian Mixing, giving you strong sound and dependable quality. You can find more of his work at torianonlinemixing.com. If you want to continue watching these lessons, you can find them on my YouTube at youtube.com slash chrismasterjohn or my Facebook page at facebook.com slash chrismasterjohn. Or you can sign up for MWM Pro to get early access to content, enhanced keyword searching, self-pacing tools and downloadable audio and transcripts, and a rich array of hyperlinked further reading suggestions and a community with a form for each lesson. So if you really want to own these lessons, study them, and get the most out of them, you can sign up for MWM Pro at chrismasterjohnphd.com pro. All right, I hope you found this useful. Signing off, this is Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com. You've been watching Masterclass with Masterjohn, and I will see you in the next lesson.